This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, everyone. We're here with you on Friday, December 1st, a whole new month the official kickoff of year-end reflection time. As we do our work all year long, we read and watch and listen to a lot. Sarah, I hate the word content. You know this about me. But I don't have a better word, so I'm just going to surrender and say that today we're reflecting on the content that shaped us this year. We're going to talk about where and how we took in news and opinion and just interesting analysis about the world, books, long reads, and outside of politics, the cultural zeitgeisty things that gave us a lot of joy. Speaking of books that shaped us, one of mine this year was Jane Ferguson's No Ordinary Assignment, which our fall book club read. And this week on our premium show, More to Say, we're sharing my conversation with Jane about her career and life as a war reporter, which sounds very heavy, and it is. But Jane is warm and gracious and thoughtful, and I think you will love this conversation. Then on Thursday night, Elise and Beth Shaw will be hosting a live book club night for premium members on Crowdcast. And we hope you've enjoyed the increased community engagement around the book club this quarter. We are really excited about our first book box of 2024. We partner with Lisa of the bookshelf Irvington to create a limited number of special boxes with the books and a few little treats in them. Sales for those boxes start for premium members the week after that, the week of December 11th. The boxes themselves won't be delivered until January, but we wanted to get the sales out there for those of you who want to buy them as gifts. So if you want a shot at getting one of those special book club boxes and to be a part of all the community engagement around the books for our first box of 2024, make sure and head over to Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions to become a premium member. Next up, let's talk about the content that helped us see more clearly this year. I want to flag for you as you listen that we do touch on themes of sexual assault and rape and some other mature topics. So please take care as you need to as you listen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Sarah, we both read a lot of news. Like a lot, a lot of news from different sources. And so I feel like there is a responsibility in this episode to focus in on something that really shifted things for us this year. You know, a source that like took us to a different place, a different mindset, a different way. That was my criteria in considering my new sources that I wanted to share. 
Did you think about this the same way? And what did you arrive at? Yeah, I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of sources. I mean, listen, if you subscribe to our premium channels or you listen to this podcast regularly, you know my source. My source is the New York Times. My source is the paper of record. And so what really changed for me is how I read that source. After listening to Ezra Klein talk about going back to the office and his dependence on paper, I revisited the idea of getting the New York Times in print. I'd looked into it, and at the time, they basically said, well, you're like obviously, you're outside of our delivery zone. But then I realized I could get it mailed to me. So I get the Sunday New York Times mailed to me. It comes usually like on Thursday after it comes out on a Sunday. And then I also subscribe to The Economist, which is another source I depend a great deal on. And something about getting them in print has just changed everything. The main thing I notice is I read a wider variety of articles. I read articles I wouldn't read if I saw them on the home page. I read articles I never encounter online, which seems weird to me because I check it so often. But I see a lot of series or, you know, deeply researched pieces that I just don't see on the homepage. And I'm just more likely to read them in print. My attention span is better. I can pay attention for longer. I get more out of them. I can see connections across the paper and across the edition of The Economist because I'm just like sitting and spending time with them and reading a wide array of pieces all at once. It has been a game changer for me. It brings me such happiness to like sit down and be like, this is my time, like tear off the plastic and here we go. I I love it. I love it so much. How much time are we talking about? How long does it take you to get through the New York Times in print? Well, it depends because some of them are more beefy than others. And look, I'm not reading every article. That would take you all day long. If you read every article in every section, I mean, I don't know if you could even get through it in a day. But I would say that I'm spending probably one to two hours on the weekend just sitting and reading it. And that's my problem with online. Like, I don't want to sit in front of my computer reading for one to two hours. Hard pass. I don't even really want to sit with an iPad and read. Because I did that for a long time. And I still use Instapaper and will save longer articles that I encounter throughout the week. But it's still not as satisfying as reading the print. It's, like, easier on my eyes. I don't feel drawn to, like, side ads or to click over or to check something else. In the same way I do if I'm reading it on my phone, on an iPad, or on my computer. So my news that I wanted to mention here is Reuters, which I have been getting their email for a couple of years now. But what I noticed this year is that I think Reuters tends to be a little bit in front of stories. They are talking about things before I see the story become a thing everywhere. And so now I realize Like, sometimes I'll pull up an email from Reuters and I'll think, well, like, none of this is what we're going to talk about today. But every time I pause and go, I'm going to read it anyway, it becomes relevant a week or a month out every time. And so it has really kind of gotten me attuned to the fact that our headlines don't come out of nowhere. A lot of people do see things coming. Paying attention to where things are going is really important. Paying attention to something that seems like it could go nowhere pays off. Uh, And it's kind of changed my mentality around what I want to talk about, especially on our premium show, more to say. Reuters did this phenomenal interview with a woman who would like to challenge Vladimir Putin in Russia's March 2024 election. And it would have been easy to dismiss that story, to not do it at all, to say she has no shot, whatever. But it's fascinating and it's important. And I think it's a real perspective shift and much more like humble and curious to say, I'm going to pay attention to the thing before everybody's decided that it's a thing worth paying attention to. That's interesting. I use Reuters a lot as a source, particularly in the news brief, but I don't engage with them enough to notice those patterns. And that's my favorite. My favorite is when you're engaging with a source enough that you do start to notice the editorial patterns. So I don't know, maybe I'll subscribe to their email. They just send a morning news summary email. Yeah, it's very good. I get a lot of those. What's one more? What's What's one one more? more? And one that brings you something different. That's what I really like about it. It jumps out at you as being like a a really different set of choices. Yeah, I love that. On the opinion side, I have found the triad to be 
extremely valuable to me this year. It is a premium product from the bulwark, and Jonathan V. Last writes it. Always, I think, how does he rank so many of these a week? Because he writes something every single day, and it is always insightful and well-researched and committed to the details, but it's not super long. So I get an interesting take that I know has a bunch of substance behind it, and I can read it quickly. And that is extremely valuable to me. Also, it usually comes in the afternoon, which I appreciate. Okay. So I've cleaned okay. out my morning stuff. I sit down and have lunch late in the day and read the triad. And it's a good little ritual for me. I don't have a great opinion source. I mean, you know, obviously, I listened to Ezra Klein's podcast. Did not love it when he was on his book break this year. Glad he's back. But as far as editorials, I don't consistently read anybody in the New York Times. I don't really consistently read anybody anywhere. I like Matt Iglesias's email subscription, but they're way too long, way too long. So that's interesting. Maybe that will be my goal for 2024 to find a take. But maybe that's not it. Maybe I don't need one person's take every time. Maybe I should just release that expectation. Yeah, I am surprised that I'm interested in reading this every day, honestly. But he explores a wide range of topics. And then often at the end, we'll highlight something non-political, kind of like our format. And I skip those sometimes, but sometimes it's really great, too. He loves baseball. It's just a good fit for me is what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. I'm interested. Tell me about books. I know you read so many books. I want to know what floated to the top for you for this episode. I do read a lot of books. I'm at like 55 for the year, over my goal of 52. Very excited about that. Um, Well, I would say the book that I have told the most people about, literally forced them to order, is Outlive by Peter Atiyah, which is about longevity. You are currently reading it. Are you done with it yet? No. I'm having trouble making myself go back to it. I liked it. I think it's interesting, but I liked reading it outside by the pool. And now that I can't read it outside anymore, I don't want to touch it. It's like I made a memory with that book. That's the physical space I wanted to read it in. And now it's cold. So I got to make a new imprint with it. I love it so much. We're trying to get him on the show. It is an assessment of sort of our medical system, uh, what we've gotten right, what we've gotten wrong along the, you know, several different versions. He says we're in sort of medicine 2.0 and he's pushing for medicine 3.0, where instead of waiting for us to get sick and using tools of limited efficacy that we should try to prevent the four horsemen, as he calls them, metabolic disorder, heart disease, cancer, and neurodegenerative diseases. And then he goes through, you know, sort of his recommendations. He, over the years, has sort of come around to where I am, which is I, you know, for many years of my life was very, very interested in nutrition and I'm now seeing the benefits of exercise and sort of prioritizing that higher. Because, he, I mean, his his conclusion, which is not when I had articulated, but when he said it, I thought, oh, yeah, that's where I'm at. Which is, as long as you eliminate the crap from your diet after that, it's just sort of personal preference. You know, it's like eliminating the stuff that really slows us down is key. And then he really focuses on exercise, which is something I've thought a lot about as I've entered my 40s and, you know, increasing and sustaining mobility is very, very important to me. And he talks about your sort of centurion decathlon, like what are the things you want to be able to do in your 80s and 90s? Man, I saw this lady on Instagram the other day, 91, doing like leg pull-ups and push-ups on a bench. It was incredible. And she didn't start exercising until she was 65. It's like stuff like that. I'm so interested. And he talks about mental health and like, well, what are we living long for? Like, we don't want to just live long to live long. This is not just a optimization to optimize, like, what's the goal? It just, it pushed all my buttons. I just love all that stuff. I love health and longevity. I know that it can be a toxic space. And so when I find someone that I think is really thoughtful and careful and backed by a lot of science and says, like, I got this wrong before. Like, he talks about fasting. He's like, I did it. I was obsessed with it. And now I'm like, I don't think it matters. (laughs) I don't think it had the impact um, outweighs sort of the risks. Like, I just, I love it. I think it's so, so interesting. So I took the other side, and the book I've been obsessed with this year is about healthcare also, but it's about paying for it, not the actual practice Mm. of medicine. It's We've Got You Covered by two economists, Liren Einov and Amy Finkelstein. 
And I've talked about it a little bit on the show, I'm sure, because I have mentioned about it. I just think that they have done such a public service by examining systems all around the world, taking pieces of what works. They have not identified a perfect system. They're not like, listen, guys, Singapore, the Swedish model, right? I feel like Singapore always rises to the top. Yeah, they're not doing that. They're like, there are pieces from here and pieces from there. And considered throughout the fact that we are a really big country and have said, here's what we think would work. I also love that they illustrate how even if we got to what we think would work, the democracy model is tough in managing healthcare because we are a representative government. And our system has been built by a group of activists going to Congress and saying, this disease is so hard. This disease so badly needs funding for research. This disease so badly needs funding for care. This disease needs to go on this schedule for Medicare and Medicaid. And we've done it one thing at a time because that's what democracy leads us to. And it is probably the case that even if we completely dismantled the system we have today of paying for care, which is what they recommend and start over, that we would layer onto that all of these things that get advocated for you know, one group at a time with momentum and and one politician at a time who has a pet project and has the power to to get it through Congress. And so it's just made me think a whole lot about how our system works and what it does well and what it doesn't do well. And none of that makes me say like, well, we should give up and we shouldn't try. But it's just, it's level setting to have that awareness, you know, that there isn't any purity available and there isn't even the most efficient outcome available that's not what Congress can do. Congress can do better than it's doing now on healthcare, but it will always do some weird things that an economist wouldn't create. And that's the the trade-off that we accept by having a representative government. That's so interesting because I've been thinking about why I don't feel a passionate draw to type 1 diabetes advocacy. And I think sort of what you articulated is why and why Peter Atia's book appeals to me. I think the most valuable perspectives about healthcare are very macro level mm-hmm. perspectives. It's obviously not that I don't care about type 1 diabetes. It's not that I don't appreciate the people who dedicate their life to that advocacy. But to me, what I see when I look through the lens of the mother of a child with type 1 diabetes is like a broader, sort of more impactful perspective about metabolic disorder overall, about the role of our diet inside those metabolic disorders, Um, not just type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes and prediabetes and, you know, the coming already here wave of semiglutides. Like all of that is super, super fascinating to me. And now I have like a real personal stake in it, but I don't feel drawn to that level of advocacy because I think with our healthcare system, like you said, there's just a limit to everybody coming to the table and saying, but like, what about my thing? when it's such a comprehensive, integrated part of how we live all of our lives. That's why this book appeals to me, like, because he just, he's like, step by step, sleep, how we move, what we eat, how we live in community with each other. Like, it's all tied up together. You can't pull out one string and said, well, we'll strengthen this little thread. That's not how fabric works. It's also just like the legislative approach is kind of one, it's piece by piece, one thing at a time, Mm -hmm. one amendment at a time. It's given me new appreciation for the Americans with Disabilities Act because that was a big comprehensive look. Mm -hmm. They could have said, no, here are the five things that everybody has to do because they accommodate these issues that we are focused on. But instead, it is a framework to say, We actually have to look all the time and be ready to make new adjustments and new accommodations and change our thoughts around diseases that haven't even emerged at the time that we're writing this legislation. So I don't know, just so much food for thought in this book. It's really, really well done. What else floated to the top of your book list, Sarah? Well, I was really, really, really impacted and borderline obsessed with Claire Dieter's Monsters which is sort of a memoir, but an exploration of how we make sense of creators who create art that we love, but do horrendous things. She starts with Roman Polanski. She's a film critic um, and talks about, you know, his genius work and also the fact that all evidence points to 
the reality that he raped a little girl in a hot tub decades ago. And she talks about Michael Jackson. She has this incredible section on women and how the worst thing a female creator can do is abandon their children. And she talks about Joni Mitchell giving up a child for adoption. She talks about several writers that abandon their children. And it's just unflinching in a way that I have incredible respect for. I think it's something we've all struggled with over the last few years, especially, you know, in the wake of Me Too, where so many male creators were held to account. She really battles with this narrative we have that genius creates monsters, that a monster and a genius are the same species, right? That genius requires that in some weird way. And I just thought it was so good. I thought the conclusion was filled with grace and nuance. And I I mean, it's not a surprise ending, but I don't want to rob the book of its impact by telling you her ultimate conclusion. It shifted my thinking, you know, ever since watching Leaving Neverland, I really haven't been able to stomach the music of Michael Jackson. But after reading her book, I thought, okay, I'm going to loosen my grip on this a little bit. It's just brilliant. It's so, so, so good. And I think if you've loved the art of a monster, which most of us have, I want to rock with you as a bop, you know, at the end of the day, it just is. And I think she battles through that and name some things I had been feeling in just the best possible way. I'm interested to read this book because I feel like I've been talking for a long time now about what does it mean to be redeemed? What does it mean to forgive? Mm, She gets into that. And I also want to know when to decide that those things aren't mine to have. Mm. Like, creators who I admire in terms of their work and abhor in terms of their life choices. Do not owe me personally an apology. There isn't a relationship in which I can forgive them. There is no redemption available between us, right? So what standards am I even holding them to? And what am I saying about myself in the world if I continue to enjoy those creations? And I just feel like we've put so much pressure on ourselves in that realm And this sounds like there might be some pressure release when you said, I'm going to hold that a little bit more loosely. I'm going to loosen my grip. That appeals to me very much. I mean, absolutely. At the end of the book, she explores her own alcoholism and her, this makes me tear up, her own monstrosity, which she says we all hold. We do. Um, Absolutely. We all hold. And so I think that just that reflection, I I think there's a real um, exploration of what we've been talking about recently, which is sort of activism and what does that look like and how does that manifest? Is deciding never to listen to Michael Jackson again a form of activism? Not really, you know, (laughs) not really. And so I think she just unpacks all that so, so beautifully in a way that I found incredibly, incredibly helpful to me as I, you know, think through all this. And as an Enneagram one, want to find a way to consume ethically, want to find a way to hold these creators to account because I'm highly motivated by justice. And so, you know, I I think I can trick myself into thinking that something is justice when it's just an empty gesture. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. 
And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Well, the book that met me most where I am and answers the questions that I've been thinking about and was therapeutic and cathartic was Romney, A Reckoning, the biography that McKay Coppins wrote with an astonishing amount of cooperation from Mitt Romney himself. I don't think cooperation is the right word, like vulnerability, disclosure, transparency, like you need a bigger word than just cooperation. Yeah, Mitt Romney had intended to write his own biography and then didn't trust himself to do it. Mm. And then did trust McKay Coppins. And I think, what must that feel like for someone to say, you're the person who I think can do an honest accounting of my life while I am still living? It's just incredible. And I'm very, very excited because I'm going to get to talk to McKay Coppins about this book and share that with you soon. As someone who has struggled with political identity, not fitting anywhere, not really feeling super compelled to fit anywhere, reading and learning more about Mitt Romney and and his exploration, the questions he's asking himself at this stage of his life was important to me. It mattered to me a lot. And, and diving into what actually has motivated him has helped me see myself a little bit more clearly. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, and I cannot wait to discuss it with its author. I would put good money on the fact that that's probably the most read book in Congress this year. It's all these retirements and all this, like, self-reflection. I bet you that's the one that got the most page turns inside the United States Capitol. I think that would be a good thing. I hate that the result of that could be all these retirements, though, Mm. because I don't read this book as saying, I wish I had never entered public service. I wish I had never gotten into the arena. I wish I had bowed out earlier. That, That doesn't seem like it to me. I worry a little bit that the soul-searching going on around members of Congress is resulting in so many people saying, this is too broken, and I am not broken yet, and I don't want to be broken by it, so I have to separate myself. Because how does this get better if no one is willing to do the soul-searching and hold the tension of, like, this is broken, but I am not broken yet, and maybe there's a way through? Yeah. Tell me about your quest to read some of the banned books as they have been termed this year. Yeah, I mean, over the summer and spring as the school year was wrapping up, there was just so much conversation around banned books and schools banning book and all those like viral photos of empty bookshelves. I mean, I have a default position I can take here as a daughter of a librarian, but I also want to read some of these books to see what was threatening if I thought it was founded. And it was a very interesting experiment that did not always lead me to the places I expected. I kept thinking I'd talk about the show, but I never really did. So I'm glad I get a chance to now. You know, I started with Gender Queer, the most banned book in America. And that was an interesting place to start because I do not think that is a book that belongs in a high school library. It has some incredibly adult content. 
And there are pictures because it's a graphic novel. And that's what, like, really pushed me over there. So there's not a lot I wouldn't let my kids read. I don't even know if that's a good stance. I don't know if that's developmentally appropriate. But, like, my mom was kind of the same way. Like, I remember reading some real sexy books in high school that were just laying around my house. But it's like, you're just reading it. Like, you're limited by what the what you know and what picture you can create in your head. But that's not true for gender queer. She draws pictures. So, you know, I talked to some librarians about it, some I really respect. And, you know, a a public librarian that we've worked with repeatedly was like, yeah, it's in the adult section for a reason. And so, but I I was glad I read it because I thought, well, I wouldn't want to walk into a conversation righteous about banned books and then someone present this page to me and me be like, uh, 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 because I wouldn't have a good answer for them. But then the next book I read, though, was All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. And I thought this book was beautiful, just brilliantly written. I would want it not only in high school and middle school librarians. I would love for it to be required reading. It has some pretty explicit moments, no doubt about it. But I thought in particular their recounting and reckoning And just emotional transparency surrounding their own sexual abuse was incredibly powerful. One of the best I've ever read in my life, and I've read a lot. And even if you sort of trend more conservative, have an emphasis on traditional family values, their sort of story of their family and how they supported them, like, is so beautiful. Again, one I would love— for my boys to read. Griffin read it because I just thought it was an example of how to be there for the people you love in your life as they go through something you don't understand. Mm, Four stars. And then, you know, I read some that were just not good. So I don't think we need to ban them, but I don't think anybody should read them because they're not good. I read The Bluest Eye for the first time I'd never read it. It's a very intense book. I think it could be taught. I would struggle for someone to read it without some guidance. Um, But it just was a good exercise, right? And just instead of having this high-pitched, high-staked disagreement about banning books, like engaging with the books themselves and seeing like what I saw, the pattern I saw among these books is just kids going through difficult, what I think a lot of people would describe as adult things. And I think we want to tell ourselves that that's not what happens. We want to, you know, create a reality where kids don't go through hard, difficult, adult traumatic things. And we want to tell ourselves that we're protecting our kids from those things. So we don't want any stories disrupting that narrative. And that's just not true. And in the interest of protecting kids who maybe are less traumatized, we leave the ones who are more alone. It's just so heartbreaking. Um, So I'm really, really glad I sort of took this journey, especially, you know, as a mom of a new high schooler and surrounded by increasing numbers of teenagers. It was a good exercise, and I'm glad I did it, even the ones that I did not care for. Listening to you talk about this has been useful for me, just in continuing to think about what's the difference between banning a book and curating a collection for an audience. I had the pleasure of speaking at a conference for teachers recently with one of our listeners, Beth Shom, and the the topic of books in classrooms came up and what what you're able to teach and how much parental input there should be. And I said to that group, you know, one benefit, I think, of this controversy, there are many, many detriments, detrimental effects from it, but one benefit is that I do get a heads up from teachers when something thorny is going to be discussed. And that heads up is helpful to me as a parent. I would never say don't teach the book. But knowing what kind of questions might come home is really useful. And I don't know if we would have gotten there without the ugliness. I, I wish that we could. Maybe we would have. But it is nice. Even like on 9-11, I got a note from the teacher. We're talking about this today. And just having that in my mind that I'm experiencing this as an adult, but also my kids are going to be learning about it and reading about it and getting some new understanding of it. And so I need to be ready. That was useful to me. And I think if my kids were reading a book at school about sexual abuse, I would want to know not to block it, but to be prepared myself to know what I might want to ask the school for some support around. You know, there are things that I'm not going to answer well when they come home and I might need some resources. So I hope that 
that conversation develops some layers that create more of a partnership between school and parent instead of just the fissure that's been there. Let's talk about long reads, which sometimes I like even more than a good book. There are a lot of books I read and think this could have just been a long read. This could have been an article, friends. An article that I have thought about so many times since it was written is Megan Garber's The Mugshot is a Warning in the Atlantic. You love Megan Garber. I love Megan Garber. (laughs) I love, love, love Megan Garber. I respect her thinking and her writing so much. When the photo came out of Trump in Georgia, she wrote this piece, and there were a lot of pieces about the photo and about how he practiced for it and that he worked the lighting and the angles and the makeup. But she did what I think she always does, which is just so succinctly came in and said, understand that we will never be a menace to him. He will take Mm. anything and turn it around to make it a tool. And that has just dramatically changed the way I've taken in all the information about the Trump trials. I talk about his criminal issues a lot because I feel like that's part of my responsibility on more to say. I have not covered it the way I think I might have covered it without having read this article. I think I might have talked about it in a more passionate way. Mm. I think I might have been more interested in some of the details than I have been. I think I might have talked about it more frequently. Hmm. But this article really helped me put into perspective what is political versus what is legal. And his just unrivaled ability to take what is political and always use it to his advantage. And I'm I'm grateful for the perspective, even as I hate what that, you know, means for America. Well, this year was about the United States and all its inhabitants uh, sorting out the new post-Roe v. Wade reality surrounding abortion. You know, my first job out of college was at Planned Parenthood. I've spent a lot of my life thinking about abortion and abortion rights and abortion policy. And so anytime I encounter something that teaches me something or gives me a fresh perspective I hadn't thought about surrounding abortion, I take note. And there was a piece in The Atlantic in August. It's actually from 2019, but I guess I just encountered it, like, because of the new reality we're facing. It's called I Found the Outer Limits of My Pro-Choice Beliefs. It's by Chavi Eve Karkowski. And she is an American obstetrician who moves to Israel and— talks about the different approach to abortion in Israel, which I didn't understand. That's the first thing I just didn't know anything about. It was super, super interesting. You know, they basically have like a committee, but the committee approves all the requests pretty much. And so, you know, a lot of these screenings can send up warning signs where in America you would just push through. There, It wouldn't even come into play the idea that you would get an abortion because of this result. DNA or ultrasound or otherwise. And she's talking about how the default goes the other way in Israel. The default is, well, if it's a flare, it could be, so you want to get an abortion. And how it really pushed her and made her uncomfortable. And she felt like it wasn't always the best application (laughs) of the screenings. And it was just really, really, really good and thoughtful and careful. It's not like she comes to some easy conclusion. And it just helped me continue to sort of expand because when you feel so strongly about something, um, as I do about abortion, and when you live in an environment where that issue has become even more high stakes, it's easy to get hardened, even more hardened. And, you know, and I think a lot about Yasha Monk saying that when the stakes are high, we sort of in-group and we police and we become more extreme. And I don't want to do that. And I really appreciated this piece for helping me soften a little bit. I feel like a theme in the pieces that really touched me this year, and I hear this as you're describing yours too, is just humility and being pushed on things that I thought I had a really firm stance on and staying soft and being willing to revisit past positions And that's why probably my favorite long read of the year came from David Brooks and was called How Do You Serve a Friend in Despair, 
where he describes losing a very dear friend to suicide and depression. He talks about what he thought was helpful at different times in this friendship and now understanding that those things weren't helpful. He talks about all of our instincts when we're trying to love a person who's really suffering and the inability many of us have to truly see what that suffering is because we don't want to because it's too painful. And I just thought that this was a masterful reflection on how I could have been a better friend to someone who's no longer here. And I can't imagine how agonizing it was to think through that and to write this piece and to engage with other people who loved this person and to then put it out in the New York Times, like in such a public way. But I think it is an incredible act of service. And I've read it several times. I will continue to read it throughout my life because we will all know someone who's really suffering at some point. And I want to remember that what I think is helpful might not be. And I want to remember what someone who's walked this path before learned from it. I like David Brooks. I think he takes too much crap from the Internet. That's my personal opinion. I agree with you. I never read a piece of his and think, I wish I hadn't read that. What a waste of time. No. You know, I might not agree with him or something in it might hit me wrong. But I always am glad that I read it. No, I totally agree. The other piece that I guess is adjacent to conversations about abortion is a piece in The New Yorker this year by Larissa McFarkahar, Living in Adoption's Emotional Aftermath. I have been so interested for lots of, you know, personal reasons, including being a court-appointed special advocate in adoption activism ever since I learned about it through Gabrielle Blair's newsletter. She featured a lot of sort of people in the Twitter space that speak openly and critically about adoption. And this piece was beautifully reported. We tried to get it on our show <laughs> Because this is something we wanted to talk about, but we want to do it in such a careful way. We wanted to sort of have a foundation on which to to build the conversation on. But it's an incredible piece. It's an incredible piece. There's a piece in the New York Times, too, about Korean adoptions that's just doing that hard work, sort of of what David Brooks does in that article. This is something that is delicate and very high stakes for people. There is an enormous amount of emotion involved. It's pushing on a narrative that we have that, you know, something that is a universal good is more complicated. And I just think that is hard, but I think it's essential. And I thought this piece did it beautifully. Just let me tell you these stories. Let me share where these people have come from, their experiences. And these are not like people that were adopted and abused. Like these are people that were adopted into loving families and are still sort of working through in adulthood what that means and what the impact of that was. I just think it is one of the best pieces I've read about this and, you know, Anybody has anyone out there that that would be willing to come and talk to us about this? this is like a conversation I still would very much like to have because I think it's just it's huge. It's it's huge. But I think it's important because, you know, I don't think anyone is advocating, nor should they, that we're going to end adoption. It is a reality in so much of our existences that parents cannot care for children. But the stakes are high. And so I think critical analysis of you know, past decisions surrounding this institution and how we can continually improve it is really, really important work. And I just appreciated this article for doing some of it and the people featured inside the article. I want to continue to read about this. I have spent a little bit of time on the platform formerly known as Twitter, and I did see some people advocating for abolishing adoption. Yeah. I mean, there are people who take it to that place. I think Another theme I've noticed this year in many of the stories we've discussed, and I think this is just going to be true for the rest of my life in part because we're just reaching this age, but it's stepping back and saying there are so many situations where the ideal is just not within reach 
and won't be. We can't create conditions where the ideal will always be available. And what do we do then? What do we do when we accept an imperfect world with imperfect choices and we see paths in front of us, all of which have tremendous pain associated with them? Long-term, consequential pain that cannot be alleviated, no matter how badly we wish it could. How do we choose among those options when all of them come with such suffering? And I think any spaces where I can learn more about that calculus, I want to. And especially the places that touch on our most personal experiences, Uh, because I do think our families of origin, as we've talked about many times, so inform the way we interact with the rest of the world. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to lighten this up a whole lot and talk about the content that just brought us joy this year. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
All right, Sarah, outside of politics, as far as you want to go or not, what'd you love this year? Okay, listen, I'm a content snob. I'm a TV snob. I'm a movie snob. And so I'm going to start off confessing that something I watched this year is not elite. (laughs) It's not highbrow. A lot of it's filmed on cell phones. Not a high production value. It's even reality television. And I blame our listener, Ashley. It's her fault. Here's the situation. I watched Sister Wives back in the day. When I had cable, I watched a lot of reality television. watched a lot of Super Danny. Wife Swap. Remember that, Jim? Mm, Love me some Wife Swap. Intervention. Hoarders. I watched it all, but I, I watched Sister Wives when it started, which was like 12 dang years ago, okay? Did you ever watch an episode of Sister Wives? I've never, ever watched an episode of Sister Wives ever in my life. Let me tell you. Follows the, the family of Cody Brown, the husband, his first wife, Mary, second wife, Janelle, third wife, Christine. That's how the show started. And then we brought on Robin. That was like the big development in the first season, the fourth wife. And let me tell you something. Only Robin is left standing. Not so much Sister Wives anymore. Just wife. And so this season has really been about the dissolution of said sister wives and how they've all just been like, you know what? I don't, you know, I'm, I think I'm out. I think I'm out. Um, so I had to pick it back up. I had to find how the story ends. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I invested this time at the beginning. I kind of wanted to see what happened. Over what period of time did this happen? Well, here, okay, let me just break this down for you here. I wish you would. In the beginning, even when Robin came on, even when I was watching back in the day, there was a lot of conversation about that Robin was the favorite. And I remember thinking at the time, it's like, she just knew. But this conflict continued for many, many years. And then as far as I can tell, basically COVID blew it up. Like, he wanted to be more careful at this point. Now, so many of these kids are grown. They're like basically adults themselves. They didn't want to follow the rules he did. He put it all on like protecting Robin. Meanwhile, he's just disconnecting. Now, he'd been doing this for a long time. He'd basically not been with the first wife for like 10 years. And they were pretty much pretending for the show, as far as I can tell. And there had always been a conflict with the first wife, I think because she only had one kid. I don't know. Anyway, the third wife, Christine, this season starts with her being like, you know what? I want a divorce. And because they're not legally married, it's like instantaneous. (laughs) I've never seen someone so joyful and delighted over a marriage separation. She like giggles happily every time she talks about it. It's freaking hilarious. So she was like, I want a divorce. And then, you know, Janelle, the third wife, was like, you know, you don't ever come over anymore. You don't talk to our kids because of COVID. So I think I might be, they have this big fight. Janelle cusses, big deal. She's like, I'm out. I'm out. I don't do this anymore. And then Mary's like, why am I hanging out? You have said repeatedly you do not want to have a relationship with me. And then he kind of starts acting like this villain. It gets more intense from there. I won't bore you with the details. But the point is, I picked up Sister Wives again I'm only slightly embarrassed about it because there were no sister wives. And I just felt like I needed to see the finale. And is it over now? No, they're going to keep dragging this stuff out. Next year, I think they're probably going to do it with Christine has gotten remarried. But I will not be watching it next season. Sorry, Ashley. It's just I forgot how much filler there is in reality television. Lord have mercy. Like everything we learned this season, we knew basically by like, the second episode, and then they just stretch and stretch and fill and fill. Like one whole section was about him loading up a car. I was like, really? This is my one wild and precious life. I don't want to spend 15 minutes on watching Cody try to fit a car in a trailer. You know what I'm saying? I think all that filler is why The Office was so groundbreaking and hilarious when it came out, because it just said, look at what we're doing. We're just watching regular people be regular people. And that is weird. It's weird that yeah. we find this entertaining at all. So let's let's dial it up a little bit. Yeah. So I, I won't be watching it again, but it was kind of a, a fun pastime. I mean, although Nicholas would watch a couple episodes with me and he was like, this is not fun. These people are miserable and they hate each other. Why are we watching this? And I'm like, I don't know, because I need to see this, how the story ends, which is basically Robin crying about how she wanted to sit on the porch with her sister wives. And now they've all deserted her with Cody. I don't have anything comparable to Sister Wives in my list That's here. A shame. It is a shame. But I guess uh, maybe on a like domesticity connection, I have loved the New York Times cooking app this year. I just okay. want to tell the world I was like hesitant to upgrade my subscription to have all the other things because, as you mentioned, there's so much news that the New York Times is doing that you can't even keep up with all of it. So true. But I really enjoy having the athletic access and I love 
the cooking app. I love getting the email in the mornings saying, here's what you might want to make today, maybe. I love saving it in my little recipe box. I do love an online recipe box. Even though I don't cook, that doesn't make any sense. I love organizing my meals within the app. I love the feedback. Like, it's just smart reviews in the app, smart suggestions to the recipes. It's just been a tremendous amount of fun for me this year. Well worth it. I love it. On the other end of my TV watching, and much less embarrassing, I had a great time watching Succession with all of our listeners. I also watched The Righteous Gemstones, which is just another version of Succession, only televangelist, and that was this very strong season. So, But Succession in particular, I think, I just loved like watching along, all the analysis, like that experience of sort of breaking it down, all the memes appearing kind of instantaneously when we all thought, oh, that's a br-. when when Kendall said, I think, I think if I might get this, I might die. Like you just knew in your head, like, oh, I'm gonna see that on one million reels. And it's just fun. I just loved it. They're all brilliant. It's like, again, the opposite of Sister Wives, very high production value, brilliant writing, incredible performances, and especially doing it along with our community and the premium spaces was so much fun. I had fun doing the Succession more to say every week. It was just great. Good times all around. I love Succession. In the the zeitgeist category, I'm just really enjoying Taylor Swift. I know we've talked about it many times. I'm going to keep talking about it. And I'm sorry for those of you who feel like we're oversaturated with Taylor Swift. But here's what I want to tell you today. Well, they're not mad at us. They're mad at everybody. It ain't just here at Pantsuit Politics where Taylor Swift reigns supreme. Let me tell you. What I really want to focus on as I reflect on the gift that Taylor Swift has been this year is how I think she is showing that there is a version of excellence that we can embrace. I feel like hard work and capitalism and a pursuit of near perfection has gotten rightfully reexamined over the past couple of years, but the pendulum swung pretty far. Yeah. Too far for me, honestly. And I love that Taylor Swift is showing if you want to be great at what you do, it will pay off. It will matter to people. You can make something unusually important if you want that. Now, it's not for everybody. It's not for me to perform in the rain or in 140-degree heat, okay? Like, I look at some of what she does, and I think that is extreme and very far. But I think it's exciting to watch a young woman pursue this level of excellence and diligence. I think it's exciting to have people happy that she's a billionaire when we've had years now of people being like, all billionaires are a policy failure. Do you think Taylor Swift is a policy failure? Do you look at this and think this is really bad for America? She's generous. She seems to try to operate very ethically. She encourages people to vote which I think is the single most important social contribution someone with her opportunity can make. She shows the importance of like building a business and owning your own stuff, like retaining the the pride in what you made and the value of it. I'm just all in with her right now for so many reasons, but especially the way that she has pushed on some of the things that I think we have just kind of lost the plot on in our attempts to have a healthier relationship with them. Well, I do think Ticketmaster is a policy failure, but that's a show for another time as far as like so, where some of that money came from. And look, I think for me, when I went to the Eras tour in April, it was, again, same with Succession, same as the the next thing I'm going to talk about, just the the communal experience and the effort. Her effort breeds other people's effort. You know, people showing up dressed up, people showing up like with the friendship bracelets and Remember outside Cincinnati, they had like a massive tailgating where people were just there to hear it through the top of the arena and be together. I just think that that is beautiful and and is important and people need it. And to wrap that up in artistry that is so intimate and makes people feel seen is really, really incredible and important and impactful. And yeah, I won't won't hear anything. You know, my kids like to say they don't like Taylor Swift. And I say, everybody's a Swifty. They just don't know it yet. Um... And so I love that. I love that sort of Taylor Swift effect. I agree. And I think for me, too, I've spent a lot of time on this show. I don't know why I'm about to cry. But like talking about artists who meant a lot to me, who lived really painful lives, who fame 
stripped bare. You know, it's the same year where we're having Britney Spears' memoir come out. You know, I love Whitney Houston. I think her life was tragic. I love Amy Winehouse. I think her life was heartbreaking. And so to have someone say, show, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. I think she carries a lot of burden with her level of fame, and I'm sure it's heartbreaking at times. And I think there are a lot of things different about her. She started with an enormous amount of privilege. She has a very supportive family. There's a lot of pieces there. But it feels so good to enjoy specifically pop music, something that's massively popular and and great and wonderful. And just and not, I feel back to, you know, Claire Dieter's book, just not feel any guilt surrounding it. Just feel like she's thriving and we get to thrive along with her. And that's just a really great feeling. Now, look, could 10 years from now we learn there's all this darkness contained within it? I guess, but I just feel like she's been at this a long time and maybe it would have come out by now. Maybe that's just my optimism, but I just really appreciate that. It just it feels like a gift to say I'm here, I'm doing this massive thing, we're all in it together, and I'm okay, I'm okay. And on the the pink sparkly theme, I really loved Barbie. I went to a lot of movies this year, and I feel like it kind of started with Barbie, the sense of like, we can go back to the movies. Isn't it fun to go to the movies? I love going to a movie. I didn't even think about getting dressed up for a movie. I don't know who thought that up. I don't know who started it. I don't know if it was just the natural result of the Eras tour and the Renaissance. Mad shout out to Beyonce. I'm only not talking about that because I had tickets and I didn't get to go. And I'm sad about it. Y'all, that's the second time in my life I've had Beyonce tickets and I've been able to go. So just everybody feel a little sorry for me. I think it'll make me feel better. Um, but this sense of like getting dressed up and making it an experience... I loved the the balance of Barbie with Oppenheimer. I went to both. I wished went to see Killers of the Flower Moon. I just love it. I love going to the movies. I grew up going to the movies. And I just feel like with the concerts and the movies and even the TV events like Succession, the sense of like, isn't it fun to do this together? Yes, it is. It is very fun. And, you know, there was a room and a space sort of um, in those pandemic years to to back off like what you're talking about, that sort of productivity, production, we can all go home and rest, but I'm ready to swing back a little bit the other way. I'm ready to to be out and to try and to try together and to have fun together. And I just love it. I love it so much. I thought it was a super fun movie. We did a whole episode about it. If you haven't listened to it, you can go back and hear our Barbie takes it is a movie that I have thought more about since seeing it than other movies I've seen this year. I don't think I could make a complete list of all the movies I've seen this year. We go to the movies a lot. Chad and I really enjoy going to the movies together. And most of it is not memorable. But Barbie was memorable. And I continue. And Oppenheimer, too. I continue to think a lot about both of those movies. On the music front, uh, the last thing I wanted to mention is my favorite podcast, other than ours, of course, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. I have enjoyed this podcast so much. I have enjoyed the people in my life who enjoy it as well. It's a fun thing to talk about. It's a fun thing to listen to. I will be so sad when it's over as it will be this season, according to Rob, the host. I just got the book, 60 Songs to Explain the 90s, so I can at least have it live on in that way. But I, what I wanted to say about it here is that I had gotten in a rut with my work for our premium channels. It can be a real grind to make something every day. And I felt depleted around that work until I started listening to this show. It has nothing to do with what I do there. But it just motivated me again, like the excellence of his writing and his focus and the way that he tries to put different ideas together and keep it engaging and surprising. It just really inspired me. And I don't I don't feel in the rut anymore. And it's been nice to have like that bit of creative spark come from such an unexpected place. That's really beautiful. I'm in a little bit of a rut podcast listening-wise, so maybe that will be my task before me in 2024 is to find something really appealing that's meeting me where I'm at. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manifest that right now. It's a gift to have something that you're excited to turn on, and we hope that we are that for many of you and so appreciate you spending your time with us and would love to hear your reflections on what you've engaged with this year that has been significant in your life. We know you are readers and listeners and watchers, and your suggestions are always 
wonderful and things that enhance our thinking too. So please keep sending those along. If you're a premium member, don't forget that we'll be talking all things book club next week and we'll launch sales for the first book box of 2024 as well. We'll be back with you next Tuesday to talk among other things about how the presidential primary is going and about this weird Ron DeSantis, Gavin Newsom debate. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Fancy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Pinton is our director of community engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Hutchins! Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Christina Cordararo. Shannon Frawley. The Adair family. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.